Hey, Nick, um, have you ever had a camera that you uh, got really good results from, but you decided to sell it because there was something about the experience that you didn't like? Well, I'm actually looking at a stack of them uh, that I'm preparing to to (laughs) put on the auction block soon. (laughs) So, yeah, there's plenty, plenty like that. And it's it's something I've been thinking about lately because, well, partly because I want to thin out the herd, but but also because we've been thinking about designing cameras for a while. And recently I've been trying to refine that into thinking about designing ones that I really, you know, really would appreciate using, Um, not just be excited that i made something that works but you know make make i want to make cameras that compete with the store-bought ones for my needs you know so what were the qualities of the cameras that uh that you're getting rid of what is it that makes you want to get rid of a camera that gives you really good results this is interesting because it's somewhat it's some of it's practical so i like small uh easy to handle things and uh, some of these cameras aren't they just for one reason or another are they feel big or awkward to me um so that's a big part of it is just sort of size and handling but then there's also mechanical things and that's where it gets irrational uh i don't like cameras that have non-functional light meters even though i love (laughs) cameras that don't have a light meter at all (laughs) come on man it's sunny 16 yeah i I can't tell you how many cameras that i have that i just sunny 16 i know but it still annoys me if it has the needle and it doesn't work all right right i I said it was irrational but there you go yeah yeah exactly hey ethan what do you think uh are there cameras that you've gotten rid of that give you good results that yeah, so um I mean when Nick said a that he loves cameras that uh don't have light meters and can't stand light meters that don't work on his other cameras that otherwise work perfectly well. Uh this is also something that gives me like a a great pain in my head until I can fix them and usually I wind up breaking them in a million pieces trying to fix a light meter that I wouldn't otherwise need. Um <laughs> but that that's not the uh the first camera that I that comes to mind. Um I uh man, I still have these cameras but I put them away for about 10 years is um i really love the kiev 60 it's you know like um like an oversized 35 millimeter slr that takes right six by six um i think the lens is nicer than on my hasselblad uh it's newer by 40 years or something like that um and i i really love the pictures but i have had um you know, frame spacing issues and, uh, certainly light meter issues and focusing screen issues and shutter speed issues. Um, and so they just sort of sat in a bag ready to go to eBay for the last 10 years. And I could never really bring myself to do it. They're not really worth anything. And then, um, actually about a month ago, I found Russ Hippert's, uh, Kiev calibration or Kiev 60 calibration site. And uh, I upgraded that light meter that I built, and uh, or not light meter, um, uh, shutter timer, and calibrated all three of these. And I've been slowly working uh, test rolls through them. And I think uh, I, I have one that works perfectly, one that is unchecked, and one whose test roll I have not developed yet. But th- those were some of my most uh, love-hate, almost sold 
kind of rediscovering cameras, if you will. And it sounds like you're rehabilitating them, uh, bringing them back. Uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And so when you get them all, when you get them all fixed up, they'll be ready to sell. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I just was going to say the whole issue, that's another thing that gets me in trouble is that I want to fix everything before I sell it. Uh, and then if it's fixed, well, then why am I going to sell, you know, and then get into this loop going right. around and around. Right. I have a couple of cameras. Like I have a, um, you were talking about light meters going. I have a um, Cosina Voigtlander R3M that uh, I stupidly took out into the rain one day about three years ago took out into the rain and the light meter blew and um i had hmm. sent it away for a cla and rangefinder adjustment because i stupidly thought i could adjust the rangefinder myself and so i i sent it away and that cost you know three quarters of the price the selling price of the camera and it was kind of beat up already it had been used as a loaner camera um so so then the light meter went and i just you know fine i'll sunny 16 this but it really frustrated me forever and so every about six months i would just put the batteries in put batteries in it and say did i have the batteries upside down or 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 something like that you know just to (laughs) just to see and uh, two years after the battery, or after the light meter died, the light meter came to life again. Now, I have no idea. I'm guessing that, I, that there was some moisture in there that needed to be just, you know, just dried out. And uh, and it eventually dried out and, and now it works perfectly fine. But I had so much money into it that I can't get my money out of it. So it's like it, you know, it's, it's one of those things of, uh, you know, if you owe the bank, you know, a hundred dollars, they own you, but if you own the bank, owe the bank a million dollars, you own the bank. Right. And that, mm. that camera owns me just simply for that same thing. But that's not, that wasn't really, uh, what I'm thinking of. I, you know, I kept that camera. Um, I think of the GW 690, um, I had a GW 690 mark one model and uh it got great pictures and one of my favorite pictures of all time was uh running some 35 millimeter film through that so it's just a really long sprocketed picture of a telephone pole and um it it just you know i it's a range finder Uh, it's everything that i want um i can sunny 16 anything i'm pretty good um but it left me cold. It never excited me. So, so I handled, one I handled go. one of those. I handled one of those and I found it very appealing. Like there was absolutely nothing wrong with it, but I had a, you know, the, the rangefinder is exceptional. And I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant camera, but I had the same reaction to it. Just playing with it. I felt like it's too big. <laughs> I just can't, I can't bring myself to to you know, point this at a human being or something. Yeah, that like that was never my crazy. issue. Uh my issue a lot had to do with the sound of the shutter, which was a was like a spring twang. And um Oh yeah. It was it, it was almost like it was a toy. And several mm. times I've gone to look at uh on eBay and uh, to try to buy the G690 
which is the precursor, which was a focal plane shutter version of the same camera, just to see if it felt oh, more like know, a camera. <laughs> but but I know Ethan can uh, repair that problem for you because he will make a device that will make a fake shutter sound simultaneously <gasps> with the real shutter sound and drown it out. Yeah! Uh, you know, the last time I made a Arduino device that made any sound, it was... Uh, fart detecting breathalyzer and uh <laughs> <laughs> basically uh my friends and i watched aliens and uh had a few drinks to try and calibrate it and by the morning i decided this was like a horrible project and my head hurt <laughs> and i threw it away and vowed to make nothing of the sort ever again sure <laughs> yeah. it sounds it sounds like a, pra- a practical and useful device think, <laughs> for a certain age group anyway <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, okay, on that note, uh, let's start the Homemade Camera Podcast. Okay, just, uh, you know, you probably figured it out already, but we have a guest on tonight's episode. Uh, it's Ethan Moses. Uh, you guys probably know him as Camera Dactyl Buttergrips or Boutros Boutros uh, or one of those <laughs> one of those other little aliases he has. Um, and uh, who, who was your publicist? What was your publicist's name? Oh, uh, Nathan Roses. He's a very serious publicist. <laughs> nice. Nice. Exactly. So, so, uh, uh, we had, we asked, uh, Ethan on because, um, you know, as we were just talking about in the break there, um, having him on the podcast will, uh, reduce the amount of rebuttal he will have to have to write uh, to the show. So uh, so there's that. But we also wanted to talk. Re- oh, go ahead. Did, uh, I guess there, there isn't really a rebuttal shortage, but, you know, I'm not sure I enjoy the rebuttals. I like sure, getting absolutely. those emails with, so, you know, that are one of the few proofs we have that, that someone else is listening to this thing. Right. I know, I know that there are people who download it because I get that from uh, Podbean. I get that statistic from Podbean, but I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's we don't nice. Know if, we don't know if they're listening. I mean, they yeah. may be downloading just to impress impress women or something. You know, right? Who knows, right? Right. There's no better chick magnet than our show. Um, and I'll probably edit that out because that's not really uh, uh, anyway. Uh, okay, so uh, to, uh, a big part of so many downloads. <laughs> You'll. Uh, You'll be getting you'll be getting a, a rebuttal soon. Yes, so <laughs> probably for myself. Uh, so the uh, so the idea of uh, what we're going to talk about uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about in tonight's episode is three um, D printing and developing cameras. Um, you know, uh, based on three D p- printed models. We've got some other stuff going too, but. Um, we wanted to talk about, um, uh, you know, a big part of the 3D printing um, revolution is uh, just like the early end of any technology, 
um, the prices have started to come down to a point where uh, pretty much anybody can afford a 3D printer. So, um, so we, you know, uh, it, it's, uh, it, if, if you want to, if you've been thinking about it, um, now is a good time, I think, to jump in. Um, I, I guess that they're going to probably get cheaper, but they seem just incredibly cheap right now. So, so let's, um, let's start off, uh, a little bit by talking about what 3D printing is. Um, 3D printing, um, is essentially the use of a, um, a 3D model developed in a computer and, and sent to a printer that, uh, and there are a couple of different technologies, but the most common out there, the most accessible, the cheapest, um, add a, a layer of material, uh, on top of a layer of material, on top of a layer of material, ad nauseum until it has a print. Um, so, um, it, that concept, uh, and Ethan, what's, do you remember, what's the technical name for laying on a layer of ink, a uh, layer of, uh, plastic? Sure. It's a, so FDM is fused deposition modeling. Um, basically it's just a CNC carriage with a hot melt glue gun on it, uh, that draws, you know, uh, the first layer of your, you could, you could think of your print as a, you know, a million horizontal slices through your object, right? And it'll draw the first layer in some sort of spiral configuration. And then, you know, the Z axis motor will pick the head up a third of a millimeter or so, depending upon your settings, and then draw the next layer and then the next layer and then the next layer. Uh, pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah. And, um, that, that's the most common. Those are the ones that are cheapest. Those are the ones that are available. And, um, you can use, uh, several different types of plastic, uh, for that. And I've talked about that when I was, um, uh, talking about the early days of the, um, of the 24 squared, uh, I had sent off, uh, a, um, an order for uh, a print to be made based on, uh, an ABS plastic. Now an ABS plastic is the kind of plastic, you know, that they would make, um, old, um, models out of, you know, if you think about going and buying a model kit, Boy, I'm going back into the past 100 years, aren't I? Um, <laughs> so you go buy a model kit. It's that kind of plastic. It's, you know, it's a good hard plastic. Uh, it can be very relatively thin and still hold up. And, you know, you put it together with model glue, uh, classic old model glue. Um, and the only problem with that is um, as, um, uh, oh, Terrapin, come on. What's his name? Why can't I think of his name? Just Schlem, uh, Todd Schlemmer. Um, uh, as, as he says, uh, it smells like you're getting cancer. Um, uh, so that's the, it does. that's the, uh, ABS plastic. So then we have another plastic that it's a little bit more common, uh, because it doesn't smell like cancer and it's made out of things like potatoes and corn. And that is, uh, and it's just, uh, uh, PLA plastic. And, um, that is, uh, is good mostly, uh, because of, you know, how friendly it is, how easy it is to print with it. 
Um, but it has a problem at for um, for camera makers in that it is not opaque unless you buy the exact right filament uh, because uh, it's essentially clear plastic with a pigment in it. So uh, black is usually just a pigment. Um, and oh, so actually, I I uh, I, I think. Um, I've been actually having a lot of problems this week printing black uh, of my own filament mm-hmm. stock. Um, I, I think often black is not a pigment; it's charcoal, which oh, really? uh, in a cheap black filament. Yeah, so blacks and whites are like really um, a lot different than all of the other colors because the other colors are dyed or pigmented, whereas uh, black and white they often use like an additive. And if you have a cheap or, or shitty bunch of uh, filament, often that, that charcoal or whatever they're using as the um, additive will uh, sort of uh, agglomerate inside your nozzle. Oh, really? Things okay. up. I, I find black often is like the, the hardest uh, material to print with. Often like it solves that problem of, of opacity or, or translucency, but um it just it becomes really kind of murder keeping your nozzles clear. okay so um we have been we can mention the brand um uh there's a there's a brand that's a little bit better to print with um uh sure. e-sun um and it's the e- spe- uh, special e-sun um uh, i think it's pla pro e-sun pla pro and uh that does come out um as as opaque so uh so that is beautiful yeah. beautiful plastic yeah. <laughs> I so love it. so um so basically you, you know you need you need a 3d model you need a 3d printer and it slowly builds up over time if you think of um like an ice storm um where you have water that is you know, uh, rain that's coming out of the sky and it's hitting things that are frozen and it just builds up layer after layer or dipping a candle. That's the kind of thing, except it's not all the way around. It's only on one edge. It's at that top edge. So that's the system. That's the system that it works. And, um, uh, one of the things that we should talk about probably, um, just to, to, you know, at the start here is, um, Talk about, you know, there, there are probably a hundred different brands out there of 3D printers and the, you know, each one has five to 10 models. So it is, do you think that's an exaggeration? No, I think that's, uh, that's conservative. Okay. Um, so, uh, the, the question is, what do you want to look for? Um, and uh, I have experience with three of them and you have experience with, with many more. Am I right? I think, uh, yeah, including some that are pretty home. Okay. But, uh, and, yeah. and that's one of the things that's kind of nice is, is that some of them come completely assembled. You know, you just, uh, you know, remove the tape like you would a, a laser printer or something like that. Remove all the tape and, you know, plug it in and go. And then there are some that need, you know, a certain amount of assembly. And then there are some that come as plans, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's all, you know, kind of up to you what, 
whatever level you feel really comfortable at. Um, but um, uh, the three brands that I have experience with are MakerBot, Micro 3D, and Creality. Um, and uh, the 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 one that I got started on and the one that I talked the most about is MakerBot. But the MakerBot that I have is a three-year-old model. And I'm going to expect that their current models are considerably better than the model that I have. It's, it looks great. It really looks great. It's a really nice, nicely designed desktop, uh, you know, appliance. And, uh, but it's just, it's out of date. It's three years old and it's out of date. And, um, uh, so I, I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't good maker bots out there. Cause I, I, I believe there are, um, I, I also, I believe there are. Not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then that, that's perfectly fine. And we, well, okay. So let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Is it, is it, uh, one of the things about maker bots is that they're proprietary. They don't let. Yeah, that's that's why yeah. I don't like them. And um, there are other manufacturers who are much more open source and use standard components that can be easily purchased independently and replaced, or you can buy quickly buy an upgrade. Um, you know, a different print head, that type of thing. Um, and uh, so, it, it, you know, there's. It, you know, one of the arguments is that I think that, um, you know, we're all using Apple products and that's one of the things that's kind of Apple has leveraged into a plus for itself and they control hardware and software. So there is something to be said for that, but it does increase cost and, um, you know, and there's something to be said against that. So, um, so what I was going to say is the, is the next one is a micro 3D, which is a little tiny printer that would be, that's uh, probably total 10 inches by 10 inches by 10 inches on the outside. And um, wow. it, uh, what's nice about that is that, you know, like right now I just have it on a shelf in my closet. You know, it's easy to put away, easy, um, uh, easy to, uh, to hide, uh, shall we say, but it, um, this model that I have, and, um, it was a Kickstarter, um, reward model. It seems to not quite be as fully, um, realized as you would hope it to be, but it was very cheap at the time. It was, I believe under $200, uh, three years ago. Um, which made it very inexpensive and it's handy. Um, and, and I've used it, but it's, it's, uh, it's temperamental. It's a little bit temperamental. So the third one, uh, that I have done work with is the Creality Ender 3. And that's kind of the hot model on the market right now. Am I right with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really yeah. decent one. I recommended it to and you. <laughs> what yeah, and one of the things that um uh it, one of the reasons why um it, it, one of the one of the advantages of it is that it is very uh finely detailed. Um uh, it, uh compared to the other two, it gets um much more 
uh, crisp prints, shall we say. Now, it took me two and a half hours probably to put together slowly watching a video on YouTube. But... Two and a half hours sounds lightning fast. Oh, okay. Well, it... um, But it is... um, It is really... Uh, you know, and then probably three more prints to figure out, uh, the, uh, what do you, or starting three prints to figure out, uh, the leveling of the bed. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it, uh, it gets extremely good quality, extremely good quality. Do you have, um, some other ones that you want to talk about? Yeah. So, I mean, less particular brands than, than 3d printers in general. Um, I, I would sort of break any 3d printer into, uh, kind of maybe three major component sets. Um, none are, you know, you you can't have a 3d printer without any of them. Um, and I think it's sort of important to break them apart. And like none of the printers that I have right now are out of the box. They're, you know, a set of, parts that I got from all sorts of things. I just actually last week ordered 500 bucks worth of aluminum extrusions to upgrade a bunch of my printers before I released this next camera. Um, I spent a lot of time realigning my uh, acrylic and wood frames in, in the camera dactyl uh, production process. And I would like to not do that in the yeah. future. So <laughs> the, the, the three main parts that I'm looking at is um, sort of the CNC carriage, which is basically the frame. And, and this is not to be discounted. Um, just, you know, th- this holds all of your motors and belts and axes and uh, electronics in place. And uh, I think a lot of, particularly on the low end of things, a lot of the detail that you can get has to do with uh, this idea of backlash, uh, which is, you know, I'm sure uh, Nick knows about backlash on like lathes and milling machines type of things. Yeah, Uh, I do. You know, same deal in it. Right. Basically what you're talking about is slop or play that, that introduces a certain degree of uh, unpredictability into your results. Yes, absolutely. Right. And so if you're, your uh, extruder head is supposed to make, you know, a 0.3 millimeter corner, but, you know, there's a millimeter of slop uh, in your belt or the tensioner or just the frame is flexing. You you no longer have that resolution, even if your stepper motors can, uh, you know, control within, you know, a hundredth of a millimeter or something. And so um, I think it's really, uh, it, you know, really important at, at sort of like a production level to to have a good um, CNC carriage, right? And and I think this is something that it really doesn't matter what company you buy it from. In fact, you know, mine are all sort of hodgepodge aluminum extrusions uh, with hardware that I bought from 10 different companies. Um, but, you know, building something that's very, very stiff. Uh, I, I do a bunch of milling as a, as a hobby, right? Like a 4,000 pound machine, even if it's from 1950, is great because it doesn't, have any slop right Mm -hmm. it's four thousand pounds of steel um so that's that's the first system right uh the second system is kind of the um motors rails um electronic controls and you could even break out the motors from the from the rails but um i think those uh, they're getting really cheap. You can, you can buy like a decent motor for seven bucks from AliExpress. Um, you can buy them in, you know, kits of five or six motors for 30 bucks. It's, it's, um, 
that's good. And they're using stepper motors and not servo motors. And, you know, we could get real technical into the, the benefits and costs of everything. But this $7 motors are, are plenty good for my purposes. Um, and then they have, you know, controller boards. Um, and this is really where I am anti-maker bot. I, I actually have a friend who used to be like a, uh, marketing team lead for MakerBot. He sold a ton of them, um, right up into and, and through their transition into like a not open source, uh, company when they got bought up. I forget by who. Um, and the deal is, you know, I think the technology is progressing so fast that I would spend my money on the CNC carriage <clears throat> and I can upgrade motors and control boards and software as that comes out, right? My control board is 25 bucks. Um, I could get a better control board for 75 to 150 bucks. Um, that, you know, gives me much finer resolution on, uh, on my motors. And the price of that is going to come down, you know, more and more and more. But, you know, if I've got a wobbly frame, it doesn't really matter, um, what, you know, what I can get out of my motors and control boards. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so, so long as you have a control board that is running an open so open source software that you can upgrade yourself. Um, I prefer Marlin, uh, is, is sort of the open source. Um, like I think the, the project is RepRap. Um, the, the Prusa printers are, uh, sort of within and, and leading that, um, development project. Um, and then there's a bunch of choices for extruder heads. Um, and this will, you know, be determined by the type of plastic you're trying to print. And these can also be cobbled together from another, you know, whole ton of parts. Um, I like E3D heads. Um, but I also like just cheapo, you know, single, uh, mode. I, I buy these, like I, I run through them a lot and burn out just about every single piece in an extruder. I'm, I'm running 10 printers right now, uh, you know, round the clock. And so just about every day I rebuild some extruder head, uh, and I just have parts and parts and parts from China. Um, which is nice. They're, they're pretty cheap. Um, and I, I just sort of consider them consumables at this point. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I have been recommending the Ender to a lot of people. Um, I think it's got a, you know, aluminum rail system. Actually, mine is in the mail. I had sent it to a friend. Uh, I was supposed to go do a job in New York, which fell through. And he sat on my printer in his trunk. Uh, it was supposed to be my backup for a month. And he finally sent it to me. So I actually haven't seen one, but I, I recommended it to you and to uh, Jeffrey Hu right. on, on Instagram. And you guys have been making some great stuff with it. And basically, I just recommended it because I think it was running Marlin using some really standard electronics and had a very stiff looking aluminum frame. Um, but I, I've also just recommended like, uh, to people who are interested in starting 3d printing to just go ahead and buy the cheapest $90 printer you can find on eBay, run the piss out of it and then figure out what it is that you would like to print and, and how you like to print and then, you know, buy or build a, printer that's good for that thing, right? I, I have a bunch of printers set up in different ways that are, you know, some are good at printing tall, skinny things. Some are good at printing, uh, you know, short, fat things. Um, and, and sort of it, it depends. So, uh, the, the other 
end of this whole process is um, developing the model that goes into the printer. Um, and I have been using, I think I've been talking about, I've been using uh, Fusion 360, which is from Autodesk. And they've got uh, just the strangest licensing system uh, that will yeah, basically allows um, pretty much anybody to use it for free until you become a commercial organization and but I'm running it on a an education license. So, um, what software are you using for modeling? Yeah, Fusion 360. I also dabble in a little bit of this and that, depending upon you know what a client. Pro- I I don't do too much 3D printing for clients, uh-huh. but um, yeah, I will. I will migrate uh, as as the project needs, but I do a lot of Fusion 360. I also use um, KiCad or KiCad or KiCad. I don't know how you say it for uh, PCB design, which is interrelated, but not exactly. Sure. Uh, you know, 3D sure. printing. CAD. Was there uh, okay? So Ethan uh, printed my uh, the the first and then uh, batches two and three of the 24 squared pinhole camera. And was there uh, was there anything um, that you could tell us about that printing job that would be it would be like uh, you know instructional about the um, uh, I, I don't know uh, or a, a good example of uh, of a three D printing job? Uh, you mean like um, sort of like challenges and and uh, yeah okay sure. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, let me think for one second. So one of the, one of the things I'm sure is that uh, I sent uh, him a bunch of models that um, I designed uh, based on what I thought was right, but they're not necessarily easy to print or uh, or that type of thing. <laughs> so he he went in and and did a lot of massaging, a lot of modifying on those uh, on those files. Yeah. So um, what I would say is like one, I am not a guy with the best foresight. Um, <clears throat> I don't I don't have very much. Uh, I I wish I was a lot smarter. Put it that way. Um, and and a lot of the things I have learned just I learned from trial and error kind of just uh i i have a little bit of wisdom through just like um ignorance and arrogance and hours of banging my head against things um in fact like i'll back it up a little bit the first camera dactyl four by five i made sort of as a thought experiment right and i designed what would be a what i thought would be a good camera but i didn't really have much regard for um how one builds a camera to be 3D printed. Right. I actually just listened to your last episode and, and Nick mentioned this and I was like, oh man, what foresight. I, the, you know, I was three or four months in before it occurred to me that, you know, I really have to design a, around how you birth the baby rather than what the baby should right. look like, you know? Yeah. Well, um, that's, that's, and, and so that's something I've been working on for a long time, but I don't know. You mentioned earlier about being smart. I'm afraid that if, we were really smart. We wouldn't want to do any of the things we really enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> so smartness could be overrated. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Um, 
Yeah, so, um, like, the first Camerodactyl took me three, four months to come up with a working prototype because of this. And, like, almost half of the plastic that I use winds up being support material that gets recycled. It's like, uh, and not by me. And it's expensive and just not, not the smartest way for making something to be printed, right? It was just like a good uh, computer model that was printed in in a sort of um, ad hoc way. And I, I thought when you first sent me the files for um, the 24 squared, the first thing I did was I just took your models, I threw them straight on the printer, I, I sliced them and printed them. And they just like pretty much, I think one of, what is it, nine parts printed correctly. And I thought, oh man, Graham is a great camera designer, <laughs> but like has very little experience in, in right. production printing. And so basically um, I redrew everything uh, to your specs, but I changed things like, you know, there were curves on the bottom of that, that right. handle grip that just didn't have any consideration for um how you stick to the print bed for an hour, four hours as the rest of it is being printed. So I did things like making sure that every part had a bottom surface that was pretty flat and easy to stick to the print bed. So nothing worked right. Like squareness in a camera is very important. Um, and I thought like your computer model was way better than your computer model could print. And so, you know, basically it was a moder- matter of uh, tolerances and, and chamfers for the most part. Um, but yeah, the, the big one was figuring out where I could give your camera flat faces that, that could be printed to the bed. And then <clears throat> a couple little things because I am obsessive and I, I really love that camera. Uh, like like I added a little light baffle around uh, the wind knob right. just because I could. And uh yeah, uh, I, I didn't really change the look of the camera. I just changed, you know, uh, a, a couple a couple very very tiny details to make it print straight. I also um, like in the port where um, you put the the lens board. Um, I just drew my own support so that it could be clipped off cleanly and everything could print straight as opposed to like leaving it to the slicer software to auto generate some cockamamie right. support structure that, that would inevitably stick and in there. would inevitably be visible in the final print, you know, the image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, those, those are all. Yeah. I, I would say like what, what I considered my job to, be was like to change your model in such a way that it could print and be the closest thing to the computer model you right. made right and and that meant changing your computer model but um making the the physical device very very right. similar and yeah i, I really yeah. love that camera i wish i had more uh time to go out and shoot with it it's sitting here on my desk i show it to everybody who's here the, I'm, I'm very proud of it even though I didn't uh, well design thank it. you um uh my my thing that is actually really exciting about that is we're starting to see images coming in from it from the people who bought um the you know those those first seven that went out and that's really exciting to me um so that's one thing to tell everybody out there you know do that. That's, that's part of the reward, you know? Um, uh, yeah. Cause money's not the reward. No. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding? I'm about to retire. <laughs> this has been go. very lucrative. Uh, yeah. For you, maybe. <laughs> uh, 
So, <laughs> so anyway, um, so that, you know, that's the basic process. And, uh, you know, those are, that's the machinery, uh, that we're using. And it's, um, you know, uh, if you can think in a, in three dimensions, which is challenging for me at times, uh, if you can think in three dimensions, you can certainly come up with, with, uh, with some ideas. So, uh, so I, I highly recommend it as a, as a direction for people to work. Well, I'm realizing from this conversation that I'm going to actually have to eventually get a printer and fool around with it because, of course, designing something for a process I know nothing about is a really idiotic idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I understand why you were printing, printing, you know, all that stuff last year, Graham, because you, you obviously need to know something about the process to do a good job of designing for it. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, part of the deal is, um, you know, I, I, burned through a lot of filament um and um you know just trying and trying and trying and you know some of the things i was getting good and some of the things that i you know i was getting were not good um and so uh you know that's that's part of the deal when you go to an expert like ethan on that and well, I would okay. call myself an expert, an extreme, extreme enthusiast. enthusiast. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're enthusiasts. You know, let's put it this way: How many people who are professional in the camera industry? Uh, I can actually think of uh, uh, three or four people who are professionals in the camera industry do a camera podcast. That's not what. Uh, that's that's not generally the people who are on the podcast. It's the enthusiasts. You know, we all have. Uh, you know, have other things that we do, but, but, you know, one of the things, Nick, is that I keep thinking that for you making maquettes, uh, I mean, I can't, can't imagine that, uh, you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to justify it, um, just for making maquettes. Oh, sure. I, I could. I mean, I use, I use annealed aluminum rod and foam board and stuff like that, but you know, I could do that. Sure. Yeah. Let, let me throw out a, another one or two. So I, I became friends uh, on the internet with, um, I don't know if you guys follow this guy, a Three Hand Studio. He's like a Korean watchmaker. He's made some really beautiful pinhole cameras as well. And he's he, basically he and I share uh, an interest in like milling and uh, like machining, right? Which I know is uh, Nick is a big metal. Yeah, but guy, actually right? I, I don't like, do, the only milling I do is with a giant old drill press. I'm a, a, speci- a specialist uh-huh. You're in more of a welder. forging is my main thing. So hot forging, black blacksmith. Oh wow! And uh, that's the primary. And yeah, then well, a lot of welding, and uh, it's all I do big elaborate fabrication, but it's all direct work. I just uh, make it out of parts. So it's it's pretty different than machining. Uh-huh. But I have some no- some yeah. knowledge of machining enough to understand it. But it is very different than what I do. Yeah, so maybe maybe PLA melts too quickly, but my <clears throat> my pitch to a lot of like particularly machinists but metal workers and woodworkers in general is like all right, so you have a hand miter box and you can cut a 30 degree, a 60 degree and a 45 degree, but what what happens when you want to, you know, cut a oh, I don't know, a 72 degree angle, right? Um chances are if you want to, you you have a uh 
you know, a DeWalt miter chop saw or something right. like that. But, but for very small, precise things and, and like just building jigs and miter boxes and clamps for odd sized or shaped things, it's been, um, really, really useful. Um, even if, even if you're not making 3D printed, you know, uh, color changing camera grips, yeah. uh, or, or 3D printed final products it's it's useful as a i still want to use wood i still want to use metal those are still materials i prefer but there is a lot of stuff that it would make a lot of components that it would make a lot more sense to print and that's kind of how i think all design should be addressed rather than than limiting yourself to one material use each material for what it's best and each process for what it's best at Uh, and i i like modular cameras that you can build up out of parts and I could really see having connectors and spacers and all that sort of thing just be something you would print out because you could get it, you know, exactly what you want. Mixing materials and processes so that you use each one for what it's best at makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, I think that there are some parts I would, pre- some parts I'd prefer to. 3d print some parts i prefer to use a piece of wood some parts would be better out of metal just use each thing for what it's best and with that in mind i kind of like cameras that are built out of separate parts that you screw together and i think one thing that 3d printing does is it tempts people to try and make very complex things in one piece and i think it's often better to build things up out of parts uh makes it easier to make the parts and and makes the thing easier to modify or repair later. Okay, so Ethan has a new camera that he's working on uh, right now. It's it's a follow-up to the Camerodactyl 4x5, uh, and it is another 4x5, or 5x4, if if we're going to talk about the Brits, talk to the Brits. Um, and uh, wh- why don't you tell us about it? What's the idea behind it, and how is it different, and how is it... Um... Sure. Can I, can I back it up through a couple different projects? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Um... Uh, actually what Nick was saying at the, at the end of the last role was really, um, something that I had been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, the first four by five that I made was sort of a thought experiment of like, what can I make entirely out of 3d printed parts? Right. Um, but that's not necessarily the hundred percent best way to make a camera. I think it was a really good camera. It's something I was really proud of. Um, but I think, you know, there were certainly things about it that would have been better had it were met, had it, had it been, you know, metal or all metal or metal and wood or these sorts of things. So actually a little while ago, um, my buddy Dennis was working on his eight by 10 view camera, um, which is mostly an Arca Swiss, but he didn't buy all of the pieces from it. And so we had to sit in the machine shop and make a bunch of clamps and, uh, fittings and whatnot. And, uh, one day we were, um, uh, we were trying to make a ground glass and he said, Hey, let's use the laser cutter. We were, uh, down at the maker space and he just cut out an eight by 10 sheet of, uh, acrylic to make this 
ground glass in like three seconds and like a, a real light bulb went off uh, for me, which is that, oh, I can make big pieces in no time at all using a laser cutter and just mm -hmm. use 3D printing to make the brackets, right? And so like like Nick was saying, being real Bauhaus about what are, what are the strengths of each material and process. Um, and so, you know, I found that um, like, like on the 24 squared, you can print a, uh, you can't print a quarter 20, not on my printers uh, very well, both because of accuracy and And, strength, and you're talking about a, a, the threaded, um, yeah. Yeah, tripod yeah. thread. But like a three-eighths tripod thread is, you know, I challenge anybody to rip out a PLA tripod thread. It's just like not not going to happen. It's very, very strong. And so um, I actually started designing an 8x10 camera that has um, laser-cut wood pieces and uses, uh, you know, laser-cut wood flat pieces in, in stacks that get bolted together with, um, you know... Uh, 3d printed corner brackets and and fittings and screws and uh gears yeah. and things that, that sounds great metal yeah that, I'm, that... I'm really excited about it um but it's also like uh it takes a long time to fold bellows and it necessarily makes things pretty expensive and so um the laser cutter was down for about a month and i moved on from that into building this light meter um which i put a little bit of you know, things on, uh, on Instagram. Um, the light meter is almost there. I'd been waiting up until two days ago to get some different acrylic to make the dial numbers. I can't really, um, print numbers that fine directly into, uh, into the plastic, um, unless I make the, you know, build a new printer for very fine printing that's extremely slow or make the, you know, light meter the size of your fist, so you can actually read the dials, and so. Oh, I'm you know, I'm going uh, for the, the fist size one. light meter. I think that that's just that's the way to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, pro probably not. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I had been waiting weeks. You know, I'd order a part and get the part and and try it out. And um, anyway, that was on hold for a couple of weeks while I was. Um, waiting for some Lexan and, or sorry, uh, acrylic and, um, also waiting for some switches and PCBs I had made. Anyway, I was sitting around. Um, I had learned all of these new things about, um, laser cutting parts and, um, incorporating metal screws into things. Um, and I had had a request. I get a bunch of requests through Instagram and my website for like products people would like to see. And a while back, um, somebody had asked me, I think it was a uh, photo dudens shout out to Matthew. <laughs> Thanks buddy. Um, had asked me to make a, um, like a four by five hand camera. Um, and basically I, I said, look, you know, in production, I could probably make one of these for a couple hundred bucks, but I, you know, I, I would have to sit here for a week or a month and, and make this thing. And like what I'd have to charge you to do it, like go out and buy yourself a travel wide or a Mercury. And, um, you know, I knew about Nick's Mercury camera and, uh, eventually he, he bought a Mercury, which took him, I don't know how long to get. And then, um, right around the time that he got the Mercury and was, uh, running through and testing it i had like a week of downtime waiting for my pcbs and switches and uh, acrylic and i was just 
you know, I, I have a notebook of, uh, <laughs> my, my dream camera notebook, um, of just types of cameras that I want to make and parts of cameras that I want to make. And one of the things was a focusing helicoid. Um, right. And so just mm-hmm. one day I made like a set of cups that, that has a ring around it and you turn the ring and the cups get longer and, uh, that actually worked surprisingly well. Um, and so I designed a camera around it, sort of like the Mercury, um, also sort of like the Globiscope that you talked about a couple sure. episodes ago. Not, right. not beautiful, shiny metal, um, but. Just a, a yeah, minimal, uh, a minimal, a minimal pyramid design, basically. So it's a, a helical on the end of a pyramid with a, a film holder on the, on the wide end. Exactly. Exactly. And then it's got, you know, a couple of hot or cold shoes on the top for, you know, a finder, a range finder, a light meter, a flash. Yep. Um, it's got a grip on the side. Yeah, it's um, basically a funnel, but it's a very efficient and lightweight and strong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a light yeah, funnel. It's actually, a funnel for light. That's what it is. Yeah. Ooh, maybe I could call it something like that. The Could be funnel. fun, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, Before I forget, yeah, so I wanted to ask you something. You were talking about trouble with quarter twenty threads uh, in the bottom of a camera, and yeah, uh, is it practical for you to instead of engine, you know, having it print the threads, have it print the hole that you it. then tap tap into, right? Yeah. So um, doing that that is certainly possible and that would get around the detail issue mm-hmm. but it wouldn't get around the strength issue oh, so with quarter um, 20 you're afraid the threads wouldn't quite hold well enough yeah exactly right. exactly and, well, and the, the mercury so, solution is to glue in an, a metal insert and that only works as well yeah. as the glue works and so the glue, right i would say you almost shouldn't use the wood style insert it's you almost need to design an insert with some sort of fins or you know square shape that won't turn in the plastic right so one of the things that i had designed for the original uh, camera dactyl 4x5 is a nut cert that's captured so it uses a 3 uh, standard you know hardware nut mm-hmm. um, that presses into a hexagon indent and then there's a faceplate on that that uses four uh, screws to screw the faceplate and hold the nut in place the deal was though then i had to thread the hole in the faceplate and i realized oh this this plastic thread is really really strong and so i just got rid of the nut entirely and started printing the three-eighths and so i i know like graham's uh, 20 by 24 cameras are um, you know, very, very small and light and they do just fine with like, um, you know, a, a standard quarter 20, uh, nut that gets glued in. But I think, you know, maybe I can convince him in future runs. The thing that I'm really digging right now is using, uh, one of those tripod adapters that yeah. adapts from a quarter 20 up to three eighths. Yeah. That, I use a lot versa. of those. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I would, the way I would use those is just print them uh, with very, very, very small tolerance, and then heat the uh, heat the insert, and then screw it in, and just have it melt directly into the plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you you have uh, way stronger than glue. Um, yeah, the good, the heat uh, set. Um, there's also it's uh, also threaded, so it's not going to wiggle loose. It's uh, right. It's well. Um, there there are lots of. Um, 
uh, heat set, um, I guess sockets. I don't think I can't think of another word for it. Um, that are available, um, for different sized, um, you know, different size threads, different size things. So, um, that's something, uh, that you can, you know, we can also use. That's essentially what you're talking about is just using a, um, that adapter as a heat set, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, for my cameras, because they're a lot bigger than your cameras, I think like a three eighths is not an unreasonable, uh, tripod mounting size. Uh, but you know, for, for such a small, like pocketable camera, I think quarter 20 is what most people would have on their tripods. All my old, uh, folding cameras though, from the fifties and before they're tiny little pocket sized cameras and they all have three eighths threaded tripod bases on them. So there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Same with my Zorkies. (laughs) <laughs> Russian industrialism at its best. You know, I, I buy uh, tripod screws now by the hundreds uh, because of butter grips. And uh, I carry uh, three-eighths ostensibly for the Pentax 6.7, which, as it turns out, just has quarter 20 tripod mounts. And the three-eighths just go to the Zorky grips. This this new um, uh, camerodactyl um, cone device now it it uses um uh it's it normal like spring back um four by five holders yep uses standard uh you know uh fidelity or right way so it's a graph lock uh, lisco whatever yep uh well so it's not a graph lock in that like other backs won't necessarily lock necessarily lock into it but um it's got you know a spring back with um ground glass or actually I, I made a bunch of acrylic prototypes i think ground glass is easy enough for me to make i have a ton of it um, but i for this purpose um, i think acrylic is a little bit dimmer but i prefer it because it's kind of a camera that i would like to throw in a backpack and uh you know let let get beat up one of the features actually that i built into it that i'm really proud of is um you know, a lot of cameras that are sort of bigger and heavier, like my crown graphic, for example, has like a folding metal cover that goes over the ground glass. So you can throw it in a backpack and not worry about breaking the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, I designed this one such that there's actually a notch for a film holder on the, uh, on the photographer side of the spring back. So you can slip the, you can slip the film holder instead of between the camera and the spring back or the camera and the ground glass. You can slip it between the photographer and the ground glass and it works as like a, like a guard, right? So you can't break the glass, but even still, I think I'm going to go with acrylic. It's just a little bit more durable. Um, and I can laser cut, um, different grid lines for different purposes onto it, uh, that I really dig. I think, you know, I, it's not the most universal of cameras, so um, you need a different lens cone uh, depending upon what your uh, flange distance is. Mm-hmm. Um, so at infinity, as it turns out, right, large format lenses aren't limited. Like all Nikons or all Leicas have the same infinity flange distance. Right. Well, as it turns out, like a 127 Ektar has a very different flange distance from a 127 Anastigmat mm-hmm. or Anastigmat, however you say Anastigmat. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so I had to make a whole bunch of lens cones. Um, right now I have them 
for uh, like 90 millimeter angulons, 127 hectares, 127 anastigmats, uh, 135 or 137 optars, 135 mm-hmm. optars. Yep. Um, and even a 150 Schneider, which is, I think, about as long as people are going to want to use. Yeah, for a hand, and then, a hand camera, you know, I, I would agree, generally. Be- yeah. Because they get really think, long in a, in a large format uh, configuration. Yeah, yeah the yeah. 150 is kind of pushing it, right. you know, to about as big as I'd want to carry around. But the 127 is my favorite in the format. Um, the 90 is, is a pretty nice one. I think some people are going to want to use, uh, like, 75s and and. 65s um and so i'll probably make some shorter cones when i get my hands on some of those lenses um but yeah uh the the whole camera is like maybe a little under two pounds uh even with a lens and a film back in it and a finder right um wow that's it's, it's that's light it's very light yeah, but it's also very strong. What you're describing is really the same direction that I my thinking has been going, which is that if something is too universal, it just has it becomes too ungainly, and it it makes sense. Like the aqua car, it really makes sense. Yeah, to make uh, specialized parts that do the job just the way they should, but it still makes sense to have a modular system as much as possible, and that's kind of what interests me. I'd like to have like a back that you know, of each graph lock size that can bolt onto other standard things. But instead of trying to make it extremely flexible, uh, the way the Mercury system does, I, I like the idea of, a, you know, dedicated body or nose cone. Just making it good. So that everything you, and you, once you get it right, you're done fiddling. You know, there's, I do a lot with shimming and spacers and tape. And then when I take it apart, I think uh-huh. I'm never going to get it to that place again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's not going to happen For sure. because I'm very fussy about infinity focus. Uh, it's dark in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I have to shoot wider open than, than I would like to a lot of the time. Uh, and you know, I like to stop motion in foliage and that kind of thing sometimes. And, yeah, so then you're stuck with, you're you know you're stuck with dealing with uh, getting that final tolerance just right in order to get away with it, opening that lens up because most of those lenses weren't even meant to be shot wide open. You know, they, people just assume that was for focusing, you know, and then you right. stop it down. But I, I've been getting into this thing with uh, trying to trying to use the lenses wrong basically and. Uh, Getting infinity focus perfect is part of that. I uh, I know what you mean exactly. So I really love shooting paper negatives. Um, and just about every camera I build, I will use paper negatives first to test it out, give it its first go before I start burning through film testing it out. And um, yeah, it's like ISO 2, which means even outdoors at a 25th of a second, I'm, I'm shooting at f4.7. So... Um, these things are zone focus. Uh, well, so, okay, you can open up the lens and focus through the ground glass, but the way I've been using them is, um, you know, I put the camera on a tripod and I measured, uh, you know, three feet to a light bulb and then I marked off on the focusing ring, you know, three feet and then backed it up, measured four feet and so on until I measured infinity. Um, I needed a really, really long tape measure <laughs> right, for that right. one. Um, <laughs> I actually try, I and, tend uh, to use Admiralty Inlet, which is two miles across. Uh, that's a pretty good. Oh, great. <laughs> great. Yeah. If, I if you can a, see it at all, of course, the at this time of year, I can't even see the other side. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, are you are you planning on having the lens cones uh, swappable, or is it you order a certain lens cone with the whole camera? Right. So it's in it's in a bunch of pieces. Uh, I'll put up pictures of this in a couple of days when I make it available. Um, but basically, there's a back which has uh, you know it's it's the body of the camera, the spring back, the ground glass, and then the grip. Um, and then the nose cone and helical and focusing ring are all sort of a set. And so that, you know, there's four screws that hold it to the body. And so it's not really meant, you know, for swapping in the field, but you could. It's just four Allen keys or four Allen screws, mm-hmm. you know, they, they come out. Um, I think I'll, I'll sell them like, um, you know, as a kit and you just have to specify your infinity flange distance. And then I will also sell, you know, cone helical focusing ring assemblies for you know whatever percentage of the the print volume that it is now you wanted to ask nick a question about cutting sheet metal right oh yeah oh so i built a film shredding device over the last couple of days um (laughs) Mm. uh so one of the next types of cameras that i think is like a classic spin-off of this type of camera that I built is um, the roll film panoramic camera, either a 617 or a 612. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically exactly the same camera, but instead of, you know, it would have a flatter cone and instead of having a spring back, it would just have a roll film back. Um, and so before I got to doing that, I made um, a couple iterations actually of a uh, six by twelve roll film back, and I didn't go six seventeen because that requires, um, you know, having a five by seven lens and actually pushing the film back way out beyond the camera, and it just wasn't wasn't uh, going to be nice to use on this camera. But six by twelve was was really it's a format I like, and it's um, really I think reasonable to shoot on this four by five. So at first I tried building a. Uh, do you guys know what like a Calumet C2 or C2N back is? Uh, yeah. Is that the yeah, yeah. is that the narrow the thin kind you can slip underneath the uh, spring back? That yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I actually have one of those. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. I have one for six by seven. Um, and so I built one of these that was really, um, really like pretty successful. But the issue was you had to load it in a dark bag uh, because the film to do six by twelve. Um, it had to travel so far out to one side of the film plane and then back that there was really only like a quarter inch of uh, backing paper keeping your film dark uh, by the time you had loaded the leader. And so, um, you know, I thought of different ways to like assemble the thing and then slide the pressure plate out and into place and then, you know, sort of like expand it like ship in a bottle style. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, my, my, my uh, MO is like do things as simply and as uh, reliably as possible, right? I don't want to build like some big complicated system that's going to fail on people and make them angry at me right. <laughs> as, right. as much as I would like the challenge. And so I actually came up with a different back. It's, um, it's graph lock, um, but it also fits under my spring back. And it actually fits under the spring back of my... Um, my crown graphic, although I'm not sure it will fit under all springbacks because it keeps the supply reel um, 
kind of at the end of the film holder. And so like the take up reel is sticking out of the camera with a knob that you can roll it on. Anyway, so it, I've been having all sorts of, uh, is it a design that goes from you know, one side to the other? Uh, yeah. Yes. Cause the one I have, the film ends up on the, the same side it leaves, which is a really weird design. So it has to make a great big, you know, right. Big that, loop. that was my first design, which was the one that I just like, I could not figure out without, uh, expanding the f- the the pressure plate like a ship in a bottle. I couldn't figure out how you would load such a thing in daylight without fogging the. No, film. yeah, it's too too big. And, and so, awkward. like, I have a six by nine. If you want to play with that sometime, but I don't think I think you're right. I think it's the wrong way to do it. Well, it, it seems to me like it, the solution to that is just tape on some extra leader. Um. You know, I mean, if, huh. if, you know, you could tape on six inches a liter and and now mm-hmm. you have to know exactly where you're taping it because you don't have the the window to look through. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that was one of the things we talked about the other day, right, is uh, I came up with this whole um, frame numbering ratcheting system, um, which actually wasn't that complicated, but. Uh, that I think ultimately that was why I didn't do that is I didn't trust that every user would tape on the right oh, yeah. amount of extra leader paper. And also I was a little worried about, you know, the exposed film being a little too close to the outside of the spool when, you know, because everything moves out. But I, I think it would be okay and it's sort of workable if you load it in a dark bag. But I mean, that, that was a few days ago. Now now I'm on to this new design, which is a very efficient film shredding machine. Left to right, rolling from one spool to the other is the best design. I mean, that's what they used in all the old, wide folding cameras. It seemed to work really well and simple. Uh, yeah. So, and then, now, But uh, we could go on about this forever. I'm curious, is this a red window or is this a... Uh, a measured travel type right so when i went to this design it was a measured travel when i had the loop mm-hmm. design like the calumet um, but when i went to this design i ditched that and just went to not even red window but like little little hole with a slider that covers a, it up a with a black peephole. thing uh, but red yeah peephole style um, and i just did that because um, because I could, and it would be, you know, I like uh, super yeah, reliable. I like simple and reliable. I agree with that philosophy. And you can also play play with it if you want to. You're not limited to the mechanics. Yeah. If you feel like overlapping frames, you can. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, and and this is sort of what I had on my list of of things that I wanted to talk to you guys about uh, is that I. I I'm on version 2.2.2 right now of this thing, and it's, you know, 25 hours worth of printing before I make another iteration into a real thing. And so I take some time to, like, sit and really mull it over before I go trying to print another model that's not going to work. I I have two major issues, um, and I think they're Mm metalworking questions that I'm not sure. So... The first one I think is minor. Um, I built a really nice uh, dark slide uh, hole, um, and it's it's got some you know good light seals that I think will work pretty well. But um, I originally wanted to laser cut some acrylic or styrene, um, but 
really to make it thin enough that I could make it reliably light tight. Uh, the styrene or the acrylic would be too thin and floppy. And so I went to metal. I have uh, 0.008 inches uh, steel and aluminum sitting on my desk here. Uh, but I'm trying to think, like, how do I cut this into, you know, because I can't get it in, you know, let's say two and a half to three inch wide strips. I have to get it in much bigger right. pieces. So you want to cut it yourself and, and so instead I wanna, of having, say, a laser cutter just send you the pieces already cut to the right shape. Or right. or or water right. jet. It's very also. difficult that Graham and Always I always look find. into water yeah. jet as well. Yeah, very expensive. Yeah, right, it is expensive. So you want to slice up this. Right. So if right. I were building one, so for what's me, the I'd size? Can jet, you but making something? Can well. you get it in a in a sheet or bar that is the right dimension? You know, in width, and then slice it from there. No, no, that is that is mm. the problem, right? And so cutting the end is not an issue if I curl it, but like if I use a tin snips, right? I'm gonna bend the edge, that, and I really want it to be. Yeah, flat. but you can flatten it. Flattening is not hard. Um, the way you flatten. With a hammer? Yeah, so here's how you do it. You want a you want or an vines. anvil or you want smooth flat chunk of steel that's pretty heavy. Okay? So so okay. that's your anvil. And then you have another flat piece with a little handle on it, uh like that you put on top of the thing to be flattened, and then you hit that piece mm -hmm. of steel with a big hammer. So what you're doing is you you're using what's called a flatter. It's a top tool in blacksmithing. Uh, and that spreads the force evenly for you. Um, you don't have to be a super precise with the hammer. You just hit the thing in it. The two right. parallel surfaces will flatten out what you're, what you're trying to flatten out. And, and so let me ask you this. Uh, if it's aluminum, I could see that working, but steel has like some springiness, right? And often you you've got to hit harder, man. Bend steel <laughs> past. Okay. But, but it's not going to, I mean, so when I've bent steel in the past, you have to bend it past where you want it to bend to for it to, you know, hang out in the right shape. But not well. I, you could I still not, make a flatter uh, work. I haven't done yeah. much. Sheet you could make a flatter work. What uh -huh. I'm describing would work. You just need to use enough force, and then you flip it over, and you uh -huh. know so forth. But uh, you're still going to end up with a less than perfect edge, and you're still going to want to like uh, take it and run it over some sandpaper, you know. And uh, take the burr yeah. off. Yeah, I've got a grinder. Yeah. Uh, well, whatever yeah. tool you have, um, you know, a belt sander is probably the ideal thing. Uh, so, yeah, I got a belt yeah. sander. Um, so I, I had two other methods that I thought about for cutting this, other than tin snips. And maybe you've got an opinion on this. I've never really done any sheet metal work. Maybe once in college, yeah. um, I thought about using a bandsaw. But don't know if I would like totally. No, you can use a bandsaw. If my bandsaw wasn't sharp, you can do a bandsaw. Uh, it needs to be, okay. you know, a nice sharp saw that's designed to cut the metal you're cutting, right? Mm -hmm. The blade. But okay. uh, you you can use a bandsaw with a fence, just as if it was a table saw, and you can get nice clean right. lines. But right. if you want clean lines, the tool you you should be using is a router. Right. So the, I mean the. The thing that I immediately thought how I would normally do this if it was just like an industrial prototype I were making or just something for myself is I would glue it to a block of wood and I would use the mill. Well, when you uh, – yeah. So when, I'm, when I say – right. So a, a, a router is just a small mill in, and if you set it in right. a table with an right. adjustable the, fence, then you can make anything nice and clean at you know, any time. 
Uh-huh. So have you ever, huh. have you used yeah, a router I think table? Yeah, about using it with a fence. Have you used a router table? Yeah. Yeah. So that's all I'm talking yeah. about with a fence, sure. and and you can get uh, any okay. angle you want, perfectly straight line, nice and clean. And if you use a if you use a template instead of a table and move the router, then you can cut any kind of shape whatsoever, you know, curves, whatever. I mean, sure. they make CAD run huh. routers, which are still an interesting option. Yeah, we we've actually got one at the makerspace. You know, that I that didn't occur to me because I thought about the mill and then I thought, you know, I would have to charge seven hundred dollars per dark slide by the time I mill this thing out. Uh and it's just not useful. But a, a router with a fence is a really good mm-hmm. idea. Hey, one more question about the flatter. Um is that best done with a with like a five pound sledge or uh maybe in a vise or uh I even have a like a hydraulic press. You could try the press. Um, uh, I'm a great believer in putting like a piece of half inch plate on top and have a really as solid an anvil as you can come up with underneath and then hitting it. I would just use a two to three, well, no, maybe a three and a half pound hammer, whatever you can swing hard and fast. Mm -hmm. If you've got a helper, then you can use a two handed sledge, but it's not really so much this, that the hammer needs to be really heavy is that, it has to hit really hard. It's the speed. And, and then the thing it's hitting has yeah. to be the right proportion. Uh, so, you know, so let's say you're doing a dark slide. So you want a piece of half inch plate that's a little bit bigger than the dark slide. Um, and, and that's not the only way to flatten something. I mean, I'm thinking if you cut this right, it's, uh, but to know, I just, okay, here's why I'm saying this. I just bought uh, a roll film holder recently that had a bent dark slide and I fixed it. Uh, so I've actually mm-hmm. forged a dark slide, slide recently, and and if you <laughs> if you can kind of control what you're doing and beat on it, at, you know, judiciously, you can get it flat enough to work. And it, I, I bet did did you use no, heat? I didn't. Heat's a risk because then the metal's going to move a lot faster and yeah. farther, and it will change shape. So you don't necessarily want that, right. and it won't. I don't, there's no, well, you could use heat judiciously to make it perfectly flat, certainly, but I don't know that you need to. I mean, Mm -hmm. it might be an unnecessary, uh, extra step. Yeah. It seems more involved than, than, um, like, uh, price would dictate. (laughs) So, you know, I think banging on it would get you most of the way there. Um, I think cutting it, Okay, I, yeah. I appreciate and also the that. other thing is if you cut, if you rough cut it with your shears, and then go to the finished dimension with the router, then it, it gets rid of that whole thing, right? So um, yeah, cut it a little bit too big with whatever your quick and dirty method is, and then just clean up the edges on the router, and you're done. Okay, I got I got one more thing to put on my list of to dos this week. I will report back. <laughs> If I if I was if I was going to ask a question about butter grips, the thing that I would want to know is is sort of like, where's the rest of the camera? Like, <laughs> people <laughs> people see the thing and they and they're like really astonished at how much personality it has and how it doesn't in any way suck up to the camera it's attached to. Um, <laughs> it sort of makes me want the whole thing. Like, 
you know, the, the butter camera to go with the butter grip. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple things is, uh, one, my new camera has some crazy colored grips. I think I might even do like a special color changing grip version, although it will be less, uh, crazily customizable than the last one. Um, the butter grip thing, it's, you know, it's funny. Like I've, I've actually talked to Graham about this a bunch is that, um, Everybody thinks that the the camera dactyl and the butter grip is all about being like crazy colors and fun and wacky, which you know it it sort of is, and it's uh, I um, I appreciate that about it. But you know where where this all came from is I when I started making the camera dactyls, I was just buying the for the prototypes the deal of the week uh, filament that was whatever color, and so it was it was less about being like crazy colors than just me not caring what things looked like and just um being totally obsessed with the mechanical interactions of things and and not worrying about it and as it turned out like uh people were really into or really hated the colors and um you know it's it's wound up in in like so much advertise like i'm i'm too small to like buy facebook ads for this or or instagram ads or or google adwords right it, like it's a very small subset of us who even knows right. what these types of cameras or grips are um but but because it's so polarizing there's so many people willing to like uh gripe about a hot pink grip on their leica <laughs> um you know it's convinced a bunch of people to like make uh articles about it right and and the crazy thing is like i had a petapixel article come out and it had like almost 40 negative comments about like how stupid and ugly this was why would he print these in this many colors and i sold 80 black grips <laughs> after that <laughs> so like oh, almost almost um i would say 70% 65 70% of my orders are all black uh, but nobody would ever write an article about me if I printed black grips. Uh, you know, I think they're good and they, they work well. And that's sort of just all I care about. But I think there's something about like, uh, the crazy colors that people are either drawn to positively or negatively that, you know, I, I'm, I'm having a good time with. No, I'm, for I'm sure. very attracted to the goofy colors and the, uh, the, I guess, the thing that the thing that I particularly like is the cheekiness, and that's what's upsetting to people who maybe have a little more of a kind of a religious uh, idea of what photography is. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of yeah. the, the sacred. I mean, like I think and all that stuff, and yeah, I think Nick, li listening, like you and I, uh, much more than Graham, probably share the caring about what the machine does rather than what the machine looks like. Like I know Graham is like very, very into, um, you know, how things look and, and like makes very professional things. In, in fact, even designed like some sticker logos, uh, for me, which I really love, but like, that is not my bag. <laughs> you know, I just, I just love making things that work. Um, I think, I, I think you I, that yeah, too. that's, that's true. I, I was going to say part of, part of my deal is, um, I I dig the functionality, but it 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 you know it has to it has to also have a look, and and that's um, uh, that's a big part of my concern. You know, I mean, I've I've spent the last um, twenty five years of my life in essentially two D design, two D graphic design, web design, um, and uh, and 
education in those in those fields. And uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, what it looks like sells, right? You know what it does sells, but if it looks like if it looks good and it does what it you know is supposed to do, then it's going to sell even more. So that's that's kind of my my approach to it. But uh, but yeah 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 I I I follow the uh, I follow the logic of um, of you know we're we're back to that 1970 Volvo right right Nick <laughs> I, uh, this is exactly what I was thinking about the 240 DL is uh, one yeah. of my favorites yeah it was that's the only uh, car I've rebuilt completely from the ground up it, I really liked that car it's you know yeah. it it's oh. funny that uh, the only time I met Nick. I was driving a Volvo. Now it was a, a you know, 2018 huh. V60, but, um, you know, it was, so it didn't quite have the, the, the hideous loveliness of the, uh, yeah, seventies wagon. I replaced, I re, I replaced all the controls on my Volvo with antique hot and cold water faucets. And because, that that thing had heavy duty <laughs> threaded rod, you know, controls, and I could just thread on these these uh, faucet handles. So, <laughs> and in the shifter, you know, the kind with the little four, the four little knobs, and a, and a center porcelain with the word either cold or hot written on it. Oh my! It was nice. <laughs> I'm horrified. <laughs> Actually, That's that great. sounds great. I don't know whether it's something. Yeah, it's I, something I would like to drive, but it sounds great that it would be great to look at. Oh no it it purred like a kitten. It looked really funny on the outside, but it, sure, uh, I rebuilt the engine and it was great. Yeah, I love those cars. I love old cars that look like just a car that just do what they you know their features are like. It has an engine and four wheels. It's not yeah. like Bluetooth. well, you drive a convertible, uh, <laughs> so I mean, you know, that's. Uh... I, I'm actually very successful. I have three cars, <laughs> <laughs> and some of them run. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if I could say I could measure success by the number of cars that you have. Like, if if you're really <laughs> successful, you'd have one, right? <laughs> Well, maybe. <laughs> exactly. So, so Nick, what are your uh, what are your builds? What are you you've got going on? Current, new, contemplated. Um, didn't you 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 got some uh, results back from uh, the Pinblad? Yeah, I've got a whole lot of things, but I'll try and go over them with uh, not too not to uh take too much time but if you if you want to break in at any point uh feel free to interrupt. I'm sure I will. So yeah, so what I've been uh thinking ahead to is that I finally think I've got everything I need to make that old so I have an old Fuji medium format uh what is it front standard from a I don't remember G something 680 uh-huh. that GX yeah, that I wanted to connect to some sort of film holder on the back. And what I found is a an RB67 revolving back. So I'm going to use that as the back rear standard, and I'm going to put it really close to the front standard. So it's going to be a little bitty field camera for medium format. And uh, I think it's going to be really fun to use. I want to get a, basically as small and simple as I can, can get for that kind of shooting. Because I like using wide lenses and... That seems to be the the thing I run up against with medium format is 
you know, how to, how to work with wide angle lenses with homemade cameras. It's, you need something really short and stubby. I really love the idea of this camera. Yeah. It's, yeah, I've seen it done. I've, I've, I've seen a couple of good examples that I've run across mostly on Flickr. Um, people have done it before and it looks like a really nice, uh, kind of reminds me of, um, you know, those images that we got out of Bulgaria just as the, um, uh, as the, the, the Iron Curtain was falling, you know, where people had, uh, you know, old pickup trucks that they were, um, moving around by hitching them to horses. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, that's kind of, that's kind of the right. way I kind of see the, see this thing, uh, coming together. Uh, you know, it's oh, I see it as a much, much like cleaner, more beautiful thing. Sure. No, no, I'm not saying that it's not beautiful. It's just that the, the kind of thing that it's this all electronic six by eight, um, you know, studio camera that, you know, you we're throwing this on and throwing that. No, on it, it, you know, although, although the part I dis the part I dissected from it uh-huh. is actually the old fashioned looking part. Oh so yeah. Yeah. Fuji was great that way. Yeah. They, they would use. They would use old-fashioned uh, ideas when they actually work better, and and that's one of the reasons I like their camera designs. Because even until fairly recent times, they would, uh, well, they're even carrying that into their digital. They they have this conservative streak, and it it makes for interesting and useful cameras. Sure. And, uh, sure. So the part that I'm removing is that adjustable front end and bellows, um, and it's it is a little sleek and modern, but it isn't. It looks like an old-fashioned camera, you know, okay. visible bellows, okay. that okay. sort of thing. Yeah, and um, but I like, but your point is still a good point because what I've been noticing with that and the Hasselblad that I turned into a pinhole camera, I'm basically taking these newer cameras and making them into primitive, older, more <laughs> limited cameras than they originally were. <laughs> it's kind of this uh, apocalyptic, you know, how do you work with what's left over kind of. Uh, sensibility sure and and i just like i don't know i like working with ready-made parts too it saves a lot of trouble and they're usually really well made uh so that's so that's what happened with that um i've got the parts that i need to put them together but the the triumph of recent times was that i i finally did rebuild my scamera uh yes and i think i've made it into a better camera and i actually am excited to use it so I finally peeled off the the skin on the front, and to my amazement, the the uh, lens base actually unscrewed just like it would on a real camera. And so I took the thing apart without damaging it in any way, replaced the whole lens base on the, this little plastic thirty five millimeter uh, Nikonon camera from I guess it's from China. It um, replaced the whole front with a piece of foam core uh, that I had mounted uh, a reality so subtle pinhole on and then i created a sliding shutter to go over that um, cardboard and tape basically uh, and i think i've got a really interesting little uh, 35 millimeter pinhole camera with a very short focal length it's in the 20s and uh so it's going to shoot pretty wide and it's got a um uh, a shutter that should work to be able to get fairly uh, steady shots um, but it's meant to be a pocket camera, a handheld camera, really portable. And and the other interesting thing is it has a distinctly curved film plane, um, which is matched to the lens position on this thing. So I think it's going to actually do something pretty interesting. It's uh, 
you know, it might turn out to be an extra good pinhole camera. So it may be uh, that I can actually claim that I've improved <laughs> and saved this camera from the hammer. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm kind of excited about it. Might, maybe we should be looking into getting another one before there's a run on these things. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, all right. So the other thing, uh, I, I took your, uh, remember, uh, Graham sent me a 67, which was uh, a pinhole camera that, or it could be lensed, but this was designed to be a pinhole camera that just slid onto an RB67 roll film back. So just slid like a slot kind of slide over and then i taped mine up just to be sure that there weren't any light leaks and took it out and shot a, a roll of i think what did i use i think it was ektar 100 yeah it was and uh and it took forever for me to get it developed it finally came back and i actually saw an image i really liked the look of and scanned it by just taking a picture of it with a digital camera on a, on a light table and put the uh, little minor processing, decided to turn it into a monochrome, stuck it on Flickr, and it went right to the Explorer page, and a lot of people like it. So there you go. Hey. Graham, your camera was camera was a, hot, was a big success. That's right. Now people will be beating down my door to get one, I'm sure. But you don't actually have like the, <laughs> the market-ready design. <laughs> yeah, anyways. I don't. I don't. They'll, they'll just have to wait. Yeah. But it's a, it's a great idea, and I think you definitely should pursue it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, just, absolutely. it's this tiny little like clamshell thing that you can just slide onto a roll film back, and now it's a camera ready to go. I mean, it's, it's really, really wonderfully simple. Right. It's it's this one of the uh, the trees, and then the one fallen tree or halfway fallen tree. Yeah. yeah. Is that what I'm looking at? Yep. That's great. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty good picture, um, and that was handheld. You know. So we just right. we need to somehow get a get a way to one steady of, the thing more. One of the things about that camera is that there are some cameras that just seem a little bit easier to hand hold. And that what I do with that one is I just like put it against my chest and yeah. you know, and do the you know, cover up the front with my finger and uh remove the dark slide and then move move my finger and and uh, it's easy to hold that fairly still. Sure, and the roll film backs, those RB67 backs are really substantial and they're kind right. of heavy and uh, they, they give you something to really, you know, steady. No, they're, they're good, but I kind of, I think I'm going to stick a, a, a tripod mount on it because it, I, I like the camera a lot. Um, so that's that. And then I also got a roll back from the uh, Pinblad Deluxe, all right? The, so I had that broken Hasselblad and I basically figured out how to make it into, you know, a box with a film holder at one end and stuck a pinhole on the other end. But I did mount it on a shutter, so I have a cable release shutter on that. And I had taken it down to the beach and taken taken a roll of shots at sunset. And they came out really interesting. And I also had some pictures from the garden. And uh, that that was interesting because it's a long, a long focal length pinhole camera, and I don't see those as much. And I think it's uh, going to be a good one. I'm going to keep using it. So that was fun. And uh, let's see. One other thing I wanted to mention, uh, Ethan, you said you did a lot of um, paper negatives, and that's something I've been wanting to do. And a while back, I bought a box of that Galaxy Hyperspeed Direct Positive Paper, and then I discovered, you know, what a pain in the neck it was to get the chemistry, and, and it was a more elaborate process. And so I basically just postponed doing anything with it. 
But I have a really old friend, uh, Philip Green, who was, who was my best friend when I was, you know, about six, seven, eight, nine years old. Um, and I re-encountered on the internet and he's, he's a really, really excellent photographer, mostly uses very outdated and simple equipment and makes these wonderful, nostalgic, uh, very simple, but beautiful photographs. Anyway, the, the way I'm talking about it is that he, he, uh, he just did some uh, experiments with this Galaxy Hyperspeed paper, and he just took it and developed it in Dectol, and it came out fine. <laughs> and huh. he, he scanned it and posted it. And it, look, it looks great. So apparently you don't need to do all that. He said he just exposed it at ISO 100 and just put it in Dectol for 40 seconds. Done. Uh, and it looked great. So, I, I could, you know, that's I'm going to start lo- loading it into film holders and shooting it. Now I went looking for some of that. Um, uh, B and H has a page, but it says that they don't have it anymore. The Amazon page says it's not available anymore. And I just did eBay and it's not available on eBay. So I think that you might have that last pack. Hmm. Maybe I should be selling it. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> so, uh, I'm looking at these photos uh, from Philip Green right now, and they're great. You know, one of the things that I um, – I've tried using Ilford Harmon before, the direct positive paper. Um, and I actually really prefer just using like um, like a multi-grade RC paper when I'm shooting paper negatives because I felt like the Harmon was way too high contrast anyway that I, you know, I'm not – I did not um, shoot 6,000 sheets and develop it in every different combo, but, you know, any sort of uh, just standard, like, Dectol developing, it was just right. sure. very, very contrasty. And and your friend Philip, like, I don't know, he's getting really beautiful tones out of this in a way that, well, you know, even the paper negs that I've done. Yeah. Well, he uses a lot of different uh, papers. That's, like, this is uh-huh. something he just experimented, he just did it and it worked and it... And the reality is I just want to use this stuff, you know, like there's no point in mm-hmm. me hoarding it forever. And, yeah. uh, my grandfather used to make musical instruments. And one point he bought a piece of wood from the widow of a guy who had bought it from the widow of another guy. And my, my grandfather said he got that piece of wood home and started cutting it immediately. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I'm not putting this on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what, Okay, so Philip Green, I'm. Uh, uh, what's his um, what, what's his uh, Instagram or whatever? Or it's, uh, well, he's on Flickr. Flickr. Okay, well, yeah, I'm Flickr. And he's it's, just Philip Green on Flickr. It, that's right. Okay. Yeah, with an E, G R E E N E. I'm I'm looking at his page now. I'm really into it. <laughs> it's distracting me. Okay. Yeah, he's he's a he's a really good. Is, uh, okay, I almost had a flower for dinner. That's one of his. Um, so see. you need to, yeah, he, he also, uh, his, his Philip is only one L. His yeah. mother's French. So, yeah. yeah. Philippe. Okay, and he has a lot of, um, like Polaroid on there. Yeah, he has a lot of Polaroid and he also shoots a lot with an 8x10, an antique uh-huh. 8x10 camera and paper nags and, he does a lot of different things, but and, and this everything's is, always uh, I was gonna really say. old fashioned. And part of what's part of what's in, fascinating for me is that most of the shots are around Guilford, Connecticut, 
which is where I knew him in the 1960s as a little kid, you know? So I'm also seeing familiar places photographed and he has, and he has you know, an old Volvo in a way that makes wagon. them look just the same of course in, in a way that makes them look just the same as when you know when i was a kid so that's also yeah. sort of an eerie side effect of this yeah yeah sure no i understand that i understand that totally um uh right. the one of the worst parts of uh flicker is that once you have you're following a thousand people you don't know who you follow i already follow him so yeah so that's good that's good yeah, I, I actually, um, I just nix everybody who's not posting regularly so that okay. my, I just keep that, keep that down so that, cause yeah, I like to actually follow what people are doing and it, it's too overwhelming if you get too many people on the list. It's, you just can't do it. Yeah, right. I agree. Yeah. You have to keep it under control. So okay. anyway, uh, I'm excited to be able to use this paper. I want to, I want to do more with paper negatives. I think they're really appealing to me but this the thing about the galaxy is it it's not anything like the harman paper it's a completely different process it's actually from somewhere in the former soviet union i can't remember where but it's um the thing about it is that it's fast i mean 100 iso even which is which is you know overexposing it technically is you know ridiculously fast compared to the normal of 6 or whatever you know whatever you can expect um, and, and that appeals to me because I like the idea of snap, basically more of a snapshot style, you know, with paper negatives. I think that'd be really fun. Right. Uh, so that, I, I that's did, something I want to try. I did find, um, I searched Galaxy Hyperspeed and I found uh, one from Zeb Andrews. Um, and that is from 2017. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, I, better, I should just shoot it. I think you have yeah. to trim the the four by five paper. I think you have to trim it a little bit to get it into a film holder as a tip to anyone else. You do to do that, yeah, and I do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I re I really like shooting paper negatives, um, like with a huge bunch of flashes. Otherwise, it's just really oh yeah, it's a pain that it's so slow. Yeah, I but it's I nice to, in, the, in an eight by ten camera. I need to look into that too. I always forget about flash but it makes a lot of sense right well i've been working with uh paper a lot lately um because my current projects are um working with these lumen boxes and um uh you know i've been talking about in the last several episodes um if you want to see the i you know he's kind of the instagram grandfather of uh of uh these lumen boxes look up hoderman and it's spelled j-o-t-e-r-m-a-n and uh he also has a um an etsy store where he sells these and he sells them uh he sells uh, a camera and it's uh i think it has a single uh element meniscus lens um that is um in uh you know at one end of the box and it's uh, as far as i can tell always on and um you know so there's no shutter system in it um and uh so just go ahead and and, and look at his and that's kind of the inspiration um i have a new design that uh should be on the printer when i get back to school 
tomorrow. And uh, it's a, a design. I'm, I'm still using the M39 lens, um, but it is a six centimeter by five centimeter, roughly, uh, image size. And, and and where I came up with the image size is a couple of places. One of them is that the um, uh, Jupiter 8 will cover seven centimeters, uh, seven centimeter image circle. So, um, you know, so, so that was important, but the other part is, uh, I, I, I thought about, okay, so you take an eight by 10 sheet of paper, you want to cut it down into an even size. So (laughs) I divided it up four across four tall, and you come up with that, um, just a little over five centimeters by a little over six centimeters. And you get 16 images out of a sheet of paper, out of a sheet of eight by 10. So, and I, nice. I, I made a, made a little cutting jig. I 3d printed a little cutting jig for it. And, um, and so I, uh, uh, I'm hoping to test that out starting tomorrow. So, um, I have that plus, uh, I talked about in the last episode, um, I, um, uh, I, I bought some lenses through surplus shack and, um, with the idea of, you know, making, making these boxes with these dedicated single element lenses. And well, actually, I actually bought a couple of triplets too. Uh, and they're, you know, they're costing me like $4 and 50 cents a piece. Um, so, uh, that is kind of where I'm going to go next. I want to, I want to find something that I can build, you know, assuming that they can supply a decent number of these lenses that they have listed, um, you know, build just like a super cheap uh, 3D printed box and, uh, you know, and the paper cutting jig and um, and let people go to town. And remember, if, if you didn't see the last co- or listen, yeah, you didn't see the last couple of episodes. That's because it was a podcast, and you don't get to see it. But <laughs> if you didn't listen to the last couple of episodes, um, the idea of the Lumen Box is uh, using paper uh, without development. You just expose it for a very long time and just basically brutalize the um, the silver that's that's in that paper. And uh, so it's just tar. You're waiting till it's tarnished, essentially. Yeah, right? yeah. I guess it, you know. And there are a couple of different ways you can do it dry, um, just regular. You know, you take take it out of the uh, take it out of the sleeve and put it in the uh, lumen box, and it takes several hours of exposure with you know uh, with a lens in order to for this image to appear. But if you do it the way uh, Hoderman does it, we, you know, you just take one of these little sheets of paper and you dip it in a little bit of water and you put it in that camera. It will um, give you a uh, an image in eight or ten minutes. So, um, you know, that's, you know, then you have wet paper. But um, uh, that's, you know, considerably better exposure time. So... Uh, I'm, I'm planning on doing a little bit more, um, uh, experimentation with that. Uh, I, I just got a message today, uh, from Jonas, uh, Colomatorn, uh, Jonas, um, and he 
says he has one of the one of Hoderman's uh, lumen boxes, and um, so uh, I'm I'm gonna have to chat with him a little bit more about that. Um, so that's that's really what I'm working on right now uh, is doing that. I'm also, by the way, I've decided I'm gonna 3D print some business cards. Uh, <laughs> so they're <laughs> so they're two two millimeters thick, and my name is uh, embossed, and then the rest of my information <laughs> is debossed into it. We'll see what the, see how that works. You, so people are going to stick this in their Most pocket and end up branded cards. with your name, yeah, right? This, exactly. This yes, very expensive business cards. Yeah, it's uh, it's about an hour print per per card. So yeah, this is not this is just going to be mm. for fun, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> you know, I, I just made one of these for a friend of mine who's making some leather straps uh, to use as like a, a leather embossing oh, yeah. stamp. Worked pretty bit, pretty well. Cool. Yeah. Actually, no. <laughs> you make some uh, leather chaps. You only need one of these if you carry an ink pad, because you can use it to just print out a card on the spot. Oh, that's you right. Know, you can just <laughs> carry an ink pad. Rip Here. off a napkin. No, 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 no. Ink it and no. You know how the kids today, if they really like you, like you, they'll write your their number on your hand. You know, so that's oh, yeah, what I'll you do. Can just stamp the I'll person. Just, right, I'll just right. stamp it on the hand. You know, or stamp it right. on the back it's of the fast hand. If you're in politics, yeah, right. Well, if I stamp stamp it on the back of the hand, they can get into the all ages show. Uh, so. And then you need the you're gonna, <laughs> you need the knuckle duster version of it, where you're you know. Oh yes, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like brass, yeah, yeah. Like uh, 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 what do they call them? brass knuckles? You know, just here's my right. card. Boom. Yeah, that's some. <laughs> Man, the I think the best 3D printing product invention I ever had was the Brass Knuckles phone case. And then with a quick bit of uh, Googling, I found out, one, it was illegal, and two, it was already being sold all over eBay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I thought I would just made myself a million dollars. Yeah, but who wants to – well, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to take us back several years. Um uh, Mike Tyson had a fight, uh, and I was at some friend's house, and and they like boxing, and I, I couldn't care less for it. But um, the uh, um, the end of this fight ended up in a melee, just like everybody's, you know, different people jumped in, people from the crowd jumped in, and there was just this big brawl at the end of the fight, and. Um, it was at the time of the original StarTac, you know, the first commercially available cell phone. And there was one at one point where somebody had his StarTac in, a, in his hand and was pummeling somebody else with it. You know, and you think about that today. Yeah, I'm going to hit you with my cell phone. No, I'm holding my cell phone away, right? So it doesn't get hurt. But just the whole idea of it being a, a weapon. So, yeah, anyway. And well, we'll just leave it. It, it is that. a weapon, but it's not you it's not used as a club. It's it's meant for more sophisticated use. Even wanted to know the story 
the how we knew each other story. Uh, so yeah, I kind of want to know that story too. Uh, so that's yeah. How do we know each other? <laughs> um, that, so <laughs> does anybody know? Yeah. Well, I know how I know both of you. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we'll 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 start with that. Um, yeah, I always felt that like that was a lacking part of your podcast. I always thought like uh, for some reason I thought that Graham, you lived in Tucson for a while, and <laughs> Nick lived in Seattle, and it turned out I was very wrong. I, I don't know how I came up I, with that idea, but then I just imagined you were brother-in-laws. Sure, or sure. Something no, like well, you know, that. we have we wrong. haven't looked into it. We might be. I mean, we, we could we be. Haven't really. <laughs> we could be. You know, um, I since since I you know essentially disowned my brother. Um, you know, I he could be anywhere. Um, so no, I think no. Anyway, um, uh, no, I, I live in podcast land. Um, so this, so that's where I live. No. Uh, okay. So how we got to know each other was, um, through, uh, Flickr. Um, and it yeah, was, yeah, that's right. That, and it was specifically, that's in, what I remember too. Yeah. It, it was specifically the, uh, homemade camera now the homemade camera it was our own podcast flicker group that we know <laughs> it was the it was We're the caught FPP. In a time loop yeah yeah it was the fpp flicker group uh the film photography podcast flicker group and it was somewhere in the forums and um uh nick talked about his mercury and uh, i had a vague idea of what the mercury was so I went ahead and um, and uh, started asking him about it, and you know it's it was one of those things where we emailed each other for I don't know a couple months, you know, and it just went off, you know. I mean, the conversation went off to tons of other things, and it was one of those things where I kept expecting, ah, eh, he's not going to write back this time, but Nick, no, he wrote back. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh yeah. So, so yeah. Right. Sounds right, familiar. Exactly. So, so um we started doing that. Um I started building um cameras, you know, uh I I would tell him what I was building. And he would say, "No. What you want to do is this." And he would he would kind of hijack my build. <laughs> and these were the early oh, franken yeah. cameras. Um, uh, that I, right. that I was building and, uh, and, you know, I mean, I had no idea. I, you know, I learned a lot about what he thought should be on my camera. Um, you know, like the whole <laughs> idea of a hyperfocal camera, um, and, uh, how to buy helicoids and, uh, uh, all that type of thing. So, uh, I, so that was the deal. That was how we, we got to know each other and, um, somewhere, in the spring of 2018, I had been I'd been thinking about doing a podcast uh, about that, and I emailed Nick. I said, um, "Do you want to do a, a homemade camera podcast?" I sent it off, and almost before I hit the send button, it was like, "Yeah, okay, so this is what we're gonna do." And- <laughs> <laughs> And he had outlined like three years of shows. <laughs> so that's well, yeah, yeah. 
I guess I didn't realize it at the time, but I guess that that I had sort of reached that saturation point where some of this stuff had to get out, and uh, yeah, you just triggered it. No, it's true because I I I've been learning a whole lot from doing this podcast because a lot of this stuff it's it's sort of like te- it's very similar to teaching. I've done a little bit of teaching, and you do quite a bit. And when you teach, it forces you to get enough clarity that you actually start to understand what it is you're thinking about, which isn't always the case. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like it's if you make if you make someone or teach someone else how to do it, you're going to be forced to understand it. Uh, in a way that you might not, you know. Yeah, and, and it's kind of yeah, kind of yeah. like with the scammers, where where you know uh, my podcasting partner went to war with uh, with uh, the Sunny Sixteen podcast. It, not that they know that we're at war, um, but but the <laughs> you know. So I had to kind of jump on board. You know, I had to had to you know fight for the side. And what I ended up with is just this incredible knowledge base of how to make a cheap camera, um, you know, or, or, or a camera oh. that that's accessible to me, you know? Um, so, just, so that I was I just it. scored, by the way, a, I just scored a cheap Hawkeye at the thrift store, um, which is, it had no lens, but the shutter works perfectly. Oh, and, uh, pinhole. It's just a, you know, cardboard box, six by nine camera. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pinhole shell, so. right? Or, well, or the shell can be, but the shutter, I think I want to dissect out and use on something else. It's oh, like, okay. you know, that perfect kind of 60th of a second kind of flipper. Right. And this is one where it's a self-cocking, self-cocking shutter. Right, right, anyway. exactly. So how I ended up knowing Ethan, so how do how do we know each other, Ethan? Um, I guess, like, uh, I am one of these guys that's like a little bit on the spectrum, uh, and uh, we've seen, so I forget we've who seen recommended your, your, they cover the whole spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I, uh, I don't remember how I found out about you. I think it was sometime like in the, the first couple of weeks that I had, uh, that Kickstarter for the first camera dactyl and, uh, somebody was. Uh, I had emailed was like, you know, you should talk to these guys uh, maybe about advertising or uh-huh. I, I forget what. But I I started listening to your episodes from, you know, the first one. And I was like, you know, one, there can't be that many people in the world who are into this. Two, I think they're just making this podcast <laughs> for me. <laughs> and so uh, pretty like. You know, this is what I think about all day. Now, oh, you're skipping uh, ahead to chapter I two started... now. You're not supposed to know about that yet. Know the, about what? The fact that we're making this podcast just for you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think I think um, I, I have at least five friends that I've turned on to the podcast who <laughs> you are now making it for them, too. <laughs> no, I, I think it's... Um, it is it is by far my favorite podcast. You guys have uh, outstripped Mark Marin for for like my my most awaited content ah, cool. of the week. And uh, yeah, I, for a while I was just sending you guys crazy emails um, about you know what I thought about the show and what, when I thought you were right, wrong right. and what there, <laughs> what that, I would that's change. The first time I I think uh, I actually paid attention to you was was the debate over a focal length versus field of view. Um, you know, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So Nick was right about that. Uh, as it turns out, so for this camera that I'm building, uh, well, uh, 
we could argue yeah. technicalities all day, but this camera that I'm building, I made uh, non-lensed viewfinders. And as it turns out, like, uh, I made a non-lensed 90, but it's very hard to see all of the edges without right. moving your eye around. Yeah. 127 is right. perfect. And, and that's a, v- a valid <laughs> cheat because that's actually how our brains work. You know, we only can see a tiny little patch, yeah. and, you know, and right in front of us. And we're we're looking all over the place, fact-checking this big fake picture in our heads. That's how we see. Right. And it's not that different, uh, really, to be wiggling your eye around. But the problem is a camera is an instantaneous capture device. So you ideally really want to see that whole field of view it simultaneously and not have to, you know, look over here and over there. Uh, so, so that's you know, I the did, trick. I did figure yeah. out, though... I, I did figure out that if you press your eyeball against the finder, <laughs> you get sort of like anamorphic vision. Well, that's true. You could change the focal cool. length of your eyeball. That, that would work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, now. Yeah, it's weird. I don't really like to, it. We've but come it's all the way full circle to the pinhole, uh, pin ping pong ball goggles. So that's right. <laughs> if you if you made if you made goggles out of a half of a ping pong ball. And then had a tensioning device that allowed them to deform your eye to make it more wide angle, and that would solve the problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's something else. This suddenly occurred. I'm going to say it. So people made a big fuss recently about how it's silly to to, um, to talk about black cameras being more stealthy than oh, silver yeah, yeah. ones, but. Uh, yeah, that that I found that that they there is a real problem with the shiny ones in in out in the sun they can blind me, and then I put my eye to the viewfinder and I can't see because I've just had this you know blast of sunlight right in the eye oh, from yeah, the shiny yeah. camera top. So there's there's a a reason that the black ones can be a better choice even if it's not about hiding from anybody, uh, or shooting through windows. Right, that's creatures. true, exactly. and I guess, and I guess on yeah, you know on a battlefield, you wouldn't want a shiny little beacon in your hands either. But uh. okay, so uh, we are on to the book. Uh, do you have a book for us, Nick? Yeah, I actually have two. Uh, one I got off of thirty uh, five MMC. Um, there was a recent post, you know that website. Yeah, it's a blog, really technically. Anyway, that it's a great blog, and there was uh, a couple. They shouted out and gave a little review of a book called A Lesser Photographer by C.J. Chilvers. And it's, I have the actual paper one here. It, it was like 10 bucks on, on the internet or whatever. You can get a cheaper uh, virtual one. It's a very short book with very short statements. It's, uh, it's not something I would have necessarily expected to really like, and I really like it. Um, the guy's talking about... He basically dumped all his fancy gear, got one simple point-and-shoot uh, camera, and just started doing everything with that. And he talks about why, and it's it's a, it's actually a really good book on a lot of levels. But the other book is one that I think would be a real Ethan Moses book. And I may have mentioned it to you, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a book called Camera Technology, The Dark Side of the Lens. And it's by Norman Goldberg. Uh, and I think it may be out of print. I don't know, but it was easy to get a, a nice new copy. And I really like it. It's uh, it's a book about how all the mechanisms and cameras work, really 
covers a lot of ground. Ooh. Shutters, range finders, focusing mechanisms. It's very technical. But what makes this book different is the author was also a camera repairman. So he gives us this very practical, like, this is how you do it flavor that is very rare in these kind of theoretical books. Uh, I think it's great. What's and the name of this it's one? It's not a huge, giant book. It's called Camera Technology, The Dark Side of the Lens. Okay. And it's got, the cover has a cutaway view of a, of a advanced SLR from the, you know, the peak of the film period. And sure. It's, you know, it's a nightmarishly complex interior. And someone just made this cross section by literally bandsawing a camera, a quarter of the camera and lens. <laughs> wow. So you're looking at a real camera that's been sliced with it, with a, uh, yeah, with a, a really good saw with all the parts intact. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this book right now, and I am also looking for a place to yeah. buy or rent it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I got a used. Well, it's not used. Mine's new, but I got a you know some some sort of book dealer on on the internet. Uh, and it has a lot. I mean, it yeah, has it all great. kinds of stuff that I'll probably never need, like vacuum backs. You know, designed to hold really big pieces of film perfectly flat, and you know that that was back in the day. Now people just use digital for that and. We like to warp our film. Okay, so oh, I'm just kidding, but anyway, there, that that whole discussion we had uh, recently about um, uh, beam splitters, right? That, that inf- there's quite a lot of, a lot of information on how they're actually used in camera design, and so a lot of it's autofocus uh, as well as rangefinder design, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Uh... Shoutouts is where we're at next. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, there's a good. Uh, oh, here, let me let me mm-hmm. start on this. I got, and please tell me who you are, um, because I went back through um, all of my communications on Instagram. Uh, somebody on Instagram said, "Hey, are you interested in a keychain made out of a film can?" And I said, "Sure," and then a couple weeks later, uh, an envelope with five of them uh, landed in my uh, my P.O. box. And I have lost who you are, and I apologize. But these are really cool. They're keychains that are just, you know, old film cans. Like I have a, a Provia 400F and uh, here, let me see, uh, uh, Kodak Gold Plus 100 uh a fuji super color 100 hr and they're really kind of cool um and i just want to uh, uh thank the person so i am uh very it, it came during christmas time when my life was very busy and i kept saying oh i'll thank the person and uh and then i lost the contact so please let me know who you are okay um, and I just wanted to mention there's a person on Flickr goes by the name BB Coiler, C U Y L E R. Uh, and he posted uh, three really beautiful uh, pictures of one camera that's a really beautiful uh, fixed focus panoramic plate camera. Um, it's an, a very elegant, simple design with nice use of materials, different materials mixed together. So it's, uh, it's a cool camera anyway. Um, that was my main. 
All right. Mention of the week. Yeah. Oh, I'm not getting anything under that name, but I'll I'll uh, I'll find it for the uh, for the notes. Uh, for the oh, it's episode. on. It's yeah. It's right. It's just on our Flickr uh, group. You know. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. Homing it. camera podcast. <clears throat> this is great. Okay. This is not too dissimilar from the roll film version of the camera. I'm well, it's the now. most efficient way to to get from but A to more B. More beautiful. Well, he's uh, used some nice kind of old worn looking materials, which is I kind of like um, about it. Yeah. yeah. And I like the mix of wood and wood and metal. This is great. Uh, the thing I'm pretty fixated on cameras that are like sliced bread with through bullets. Oh, I yeah. really like the stacking the the stacking approach um to different modules and and you know you were saying earlier Ethan uh that you were interested in trying to you you couldn't respond to a guy who wanted a custom camera because a one off was too expensive and that's cuz you think about production a lot and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I have the same problem in my work but but there is a way around it, which is if you if you get certain modular components figured out, um, then the one custom bit might be you know a, sim- a single design that you would add to your standard modular right. parts, and you could do something like that. Um, and I, and the reason I want to build cameras like that is because I sort of want to I want to make my own custom things happen, and it's just much more efficient to have some parts reused than to have to start from scratch every single time, you know. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like having uh, the 3D models of of one nose cone makes it so much easier to make the 3D model right. of the second nose cone by changing some right. parameters. But if they all but, fit to a standardized, yeah, I, I got to build yeah, up the if library. They all fit a bit. to a standardized graph lock connector, um, then that takes care of the whole film transport thing. You know, for for medium format. <laughs> uh, Nick, do you have anybody to shout out to? Uh, nobody knew. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Ethan. Yes. Yeah. Hey, uh, David David was my uh, Secret Santa from Emulsive. He sent me a whole bunch of great stuff, including a Mighty Car Mods uh, hey. t-shirt all the way from Australia, which I really appreciate. Um, I'm a big fan of those guys. But he also sent me um, the point-and-shoot camera and a whole bunch of film and uh, a great zine from a friend of his and some... Uh, fabrics that i hope to use on my new 8x10 camera in a couple of months and uh some lenses that will probably meet a gory end uh getting chopped up for other projects wow. and <laughs> homemade cameras but cool uh, i'm jealous good fun yeah it was great thank yeah, you david, and david I'm from australia totally jealous because my secret santa has not yet delivered on him Hey, I, I heard that today, but for what it's worth, my secret Santa did not get her package uh, until oh, yeah. and, like, and that's what I'm, this week. And that's what I'm so hoping maybe for, it's you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's still, you know, there are slow postal services. And if it has to go internationally, um, then, yeah. So <clears throat> I have a... Oh, okay, before you go, before you get to that, um, there was one last thing that I never, I realized I never really asked you, Ethan. So I teased you about those butter grip, those colorful butter grips. But what I was really going with that is I really do want the rest of the camera. I want the 35 millimeter, <laughs> you know, roll film standard camera that, that actually matches that uh, and is really simple. Well, so... 
Okay. Okay. So this is like a little bit of the the uh, business of homemade, semi-homemade cameras and running a camera biz. What I found out is like I sold a bunch of those camera dactyls, uh, but they were very mm-hmm. unprofitable sure. because they took a lot of time and energy. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what to do with them. I think if I were to sell them at a price, the original design that um, – you know, that made sense for me, you would be crazy not to just go, you know, buy a very expensive camera. Yeah, I'm, but, I'm really um, kicking, the butter I'm really grips, kicking like, myself that ex- I didn't get one of the first batch <laughs> before you discovered that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the the deal with the butter grips is, you know, they they cost me maybe a couple hundred bucks worth of time to make each model but after that they're not super i mean i'm selling them for 21 bucks but they're not super um expensive sure. for me to make and fill the orders doesn't take me hours and hours to fold bellows and, and that sort of thing and so what i'm hoping is that the butter grips will allow me some more time to sit down and work on like my moonshot projects which are um, right now you know i've been working on and it's kind of shelved because I think these projects are probably about six months worth of prototyping that, you know, I just, I have got to fill some simpler orders while I'm, you know, sitting here drafting to be able to do that for six months. But uh, the moonshots are, are 35 millimeter and medium format range finders uh, that, you know, I don't really have much to show. Just bunches of uh, like shutter mechanisms and non-working film advance mechanisms and uh, things like that. But yeah, I mean, I I would love to see that camera. All too. right, good. That's all I need <laughs> to know. That way. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on it. Cool. So Thanks, uh, how do they get a hold of you, Ethan? Um, so I am Cameradactyl, C-A-M-E-R-A-D-A-C-T-Y-L on Instagram and at Buttergrip, that's singular, B-U-T-T-E-R-G-R-I-P, or you can find me at Cameradactyl.com. Right. Uh, Nick, how do they find you? Uh, well, I'm Nick Lyle on Flickr, uh, Avi Nick, A-V-Y-N-I-C-K on Instagram, which is just a few of the Flickr pictures get shunted over there and it's really nothing different and uh that's it um and then oh, oh, oh you know, you're also a, nick there's a there's an email address as nick well. at homemadecamera.com and i am graham at homemadecamera.com and uh i am freezer of photons on Flickr. i am graham homemade camera on uh instagram and uh and yeah, I think that that's all my contacts. Yeah, Robbie Cribs, thanks a lot for the music that we use throughout this show. Um, and uh, if, if you guys like his music, you should check out his work at uh, Soundtrap Studios.
Hey, can I just say uh, before we get into 3D printing, thanks for having me on. And uh, it's like it's like I'm in my favorite podcast, and this time I don't have to uh, send a spirited rebuttal and <laughs> a list of comments after every episode. I'm right here. It's amazing. <laughs> 